Welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Career. I'm your host, Jennifer Ong, and in my podcast, I interview people who have taken a leap of faith and pursued an alternative career path in Asia. Today, I'm super excited to have Greg Van join us. Greg is the founder of Endowis, a robo-advisor startup here in Singapore. Before starting Endowis, Greg worked as an investment banker at UBS and also at Grab in their payments team. So how did he transition first from finance to tech and then to building his own company? I'll hand over to Greg now to share his story. Let's start all the way from the beginning. You grew up in Hong Kong, and then you decided to go to university at UPenn. Tell us a little bit about what you studied there. So I was a PPE major, which means politics, philosophy, and economics. I, I think UPenn is a very business-oriented school, and I always knew I wanted to be in business in some way, shape, or form. I didn't really know how. So UPenn was a natural fit, but when I got there, it wasn't clear to me exactly what major I should take, which is why I ended up doing PPE. Okay. So you said that you were interested in business pretty early on, and that's kind of one of the reasons why you went to Penn. Were you thinking you would eventually start a business at that point, or you just had an idea that like, hey, you know, something in the business space would be interesting? I came from a family of entrepreneurs. So having a job was like a place to learn more than anything for me. And then I always knew I would eventually want to start my own business. I knew that obviously it's very difficult to go out the gates and be like, okay, I'm going to start my own business. And I've never worked before. It can be considered a very high risk move. When leaving UPenn, it was trending to go into investment banking or consulting. And it was never my long-term ambition, but I wanted a platform where I could learn a lot and get a good overview of how the world of business works and then try and understand where in that world I would be very interested in spending most of my waking hours. I knew I wanted to come back to Asia. So I wanted to find an investment banking role. I wanted to be in a role where I could really travel the region and get a broad overview of a lot of different businesses. So I was very fortunate to end up in a team called the Private Funds Group at UBS and the Investment Bank based in Singapore, but covering Asia Pacific. And Asia Pacific means everywhere from Australia, New Zealand, to Japan, to China, to India. And it was great because we were a very small team regionally, you know, five or six people. We had clients all over the region. And those clients were private equity and venture capital funds or fund managers or what you call GPs in the business. And they in turn had anywhere from five to 50 portfolio companies. So from that perspective, I was able to see a lot of business culture across the region and businesses across the region and sort of gain perspective on how the markets work, how capital works within those markets, the push and pull of the world of finance and meet many entrepreneurs that were very, very inspiring. That sounds like a pretty fun and interesting role. What made you decide to move on from it? It was super fun. It was an awesome job, truly. But three years in, I knew that it was too high level. I wanted to get closer to real operating businesses. I wanted to get my hands dirty. So we were very fortunate to work with legendary investors who were entrepreneurs themselves. And they're like, Greg, you don't need to be at UBS to learn. Just leave UBS and join 
some fast-growing startup, any fast-growing startup, and you will learn how real business works. One of our GPs that we were working with was an early investor in Grab Taxi, which is now known as Grab. Grab was sort of really picking up steam in Southeast Asia at the time. So 2015, I left UBS and joined Grab as one of their first business development and partnerships people. At that point in time, you were like, I want to get my hands dirty, really understand how to run a business. Was that at the back of your mind because you wanted to learn skills to be able to eventually build your own business? I think you're exactly right. Because when you're looking in from the outside, all you see is what has been carefully crafted for you to see. When you're in investment banking or consulting, you're like, if you do this and that, then these metrics will go up. And then you create these projection charts and they're growing at 30%. That's all great, but it certainly does not paint the picture. When you're on the ground, it's a whole nother thing. You're like, hey, I'm trying to reach these 30% month over month growth. How do we actually do it? (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. I think early on, you realize that everyone is selling to something or someone. Investment bankers are selling a company to investors. Or if you're in consulting, you're selling all your services as an investor or as a user of a product. You don't see the craziness happening behind the veil. And you also don't appreciate that craziness. So it wasn't like joining Grab would teach me how to run a business, but it would put me in a situation where I could really be a sponge, observe and understand how stuff gets done. When you go into a company, especially a fast-growing startup that may be sexy and well-funded and everything else, you realize that there's nothing special about anyone. It just requires focus, hard work, and creativity to make something happen. If you put your mind to it, you can solve problems and everyone is learning on the job. No one is certain about the decisions they're making when they make them. What I learned from being at Grab for about two years is that in the grand scheme of things, there's no silver bullet or there's no stroke of genius. A lot of things are kind of winged because they have to be. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but just because they have to be. And it's totally okay. So I would say being a grab gave me the confidence to go out and say, you know what, I can also start a business. Got it. I can also be an entrepreneur. I can also deal with the fundraising and deal with the employees and raise and, and hire a great team and solve an important problem. So it was just a matter of finding the problem to solve. Mm, And one that maybe I was passionate about and one that I felt I could do and feel good about for a very long time. So how did you land on this idea? In one sentence, in Dallas is a fee-only wealth platform, full stop. I always had to full stop because otherwise it becomes like a 30-paragraph run-on sentence, which no one wants to hear. And Dallas focuses on three things. Holistic, systematic advice on your money, superior access to financial products at lower and very importantly, fairer and transparent fees. The objective here is to help people invest better so they can live easier today and focus on things that they can control, unlike the markets, and live better tomorrow and be better prepared for retirement the future. And Dallas is a fee-only wealth platform. It's a very simple concept that seems so obvious that you will be shocked 
to realize that there are non-fee-only platforms or advisors. When most people are sold a financial product, the person selling it to you will usually receive, in most cases, especially in Asia, a trailer fee kickback. It has other names. It has names like retrocession, load. It can be a loaded fee. It can be a sales commission, whatever you want to call it, from the product provider. But the sales fee is just bad because now I'm incentivized to sell you products that pay me more on a recurring basis. And this thing goes on and on and on until people just remain poorly served with poor outcomes. This is a real problem. The retirement adequacy problem in Asia is going to be enormous because we have a very fast aging population and inflation happens. So your purchasing power will decrease and decrease and decrease over time if you don't invest well. So it's very simple. And Dallas just wants people to invest better, help people invest better, give them the tools they need, the advice they need to invest better so they can live easier today, which means that you can open up your mind to creative things like real value-added things, things that will help you and help your loved ones and help your friends and help the community and just make you happier, knowing that you've taken care of that money part of your life. I, I love this and I love the story around this. I want to take one step back though. Before you fully formed this idea, were there other ideas that you were considering at that point in time? How did you land on this idea about investing better, making sure that people get access to low fees? At UBS, we deal with very sophisticated institutional investors. Your Tomasics, GICs, HKMAs, big pension funds. What you get in that conversation is you get to see and you get to understand how it is that these sophisticated institutions invest across multiple asset classes. So asset classes are like stocks, bonds, and within those, you have many different asset classes as well. And in these conversations with these institutional investors, as an investment banker, in order to do your job well, you need to understand the rationale, what it is they're looking for, and why this fund might be a good fit for their total allocation. I realized that there is a reason why these institutions, which control trillions of dollars, invest a certain way and adopted that for myself. That was right around when I left UBS to join Grab. It was taxi only and cash only. I asked the management if I could focus on payments and kind of was able to kickstart what is now known of as grab pay by first solving a lot of driver pain points on the cash in and cash out for them, solving credit cards and debit cards, and then over a hundred different payment methods across the region. So I had seen how institutions invest, and then I had seen how companies operate, and I had seen a little bit of what people call fintech. And a friend of mine actually approached me and said, look, I actually tried to invest my CPF. So CPF is, for those of you in Hong Kong, it's, it's the equivalent of MPF here in Singapore, but it's actually a 37% contribution rate of your salary. So extremely high mandatory savings plan. It's for retirement, but it has other use cases. A lot of people use it for housing here in Singapore, but it, it actually is designed for retirement. So he came to me and said, look, it was incredibly difficult. The costs were absurd. What we realized is that a globally diversified low-cost portfolio with your CPF was just simply not possible to create given the tools available mm. in the CPF system at that time. It wasn't CPF's fault. Fund managers were not participating 
because they didn't see it as a very big market, even though it's a massive market and extremely underserved. So this was shocking to me, right? How is it that Singapore, which is a financial hub, did not have a good investment option for the pension savings of its citizens? So I didn't really believe him, actually. I'm not Singaporean. So I said, okay, well, my wife is Singaporean. I'm going to try with her. And after going to the bank and asking the banker for ideas on what to do with her CPF, it became clear that the experience of investing your CPF was very high friction and broken and was bound to lead to poor outcomes because no one was really aligned to help people long-term, even though this is the longest-term money. And that to us was a trigger point to say, we need to solve this and we can solve it with technology. So basically you came about this idea as you were at Grab. You had another friend who also had faced similar issues on his side when he was trying to invest his own CPF. And when you tested this out with your wife's account, you also noticed you can make this process a lot more hassle-free. And so the options that were available for your CPF were not that great in diversifying your portfolio and also in giving you the returns that you would want in your portfolio. There weren't a lot of funds for you to pick within the CPF. And there were no low-cost passive funds. Ah, uh, okay. So low-cost like, diversified passive funds. Got it. So, and that space was yeah. missing because a lot of companies or a lot of fund managers didn't feel like the CPF audience was worth the time for them to really allocate or for them to be able to offer their fund on that platform? That is a fair way of putting it. Got it. So then that's how you guys kind of found this opportunity being like, hey, this is like an underserved market. There's a lot of potential here. Why don't we think about entering into this and starting a business around this? It's more like, how do we help people make their money work for them and do it fairly, right? We knew about these trailer fees. We knew about these crazy sales fees. And we knew about how large institutions invest. So we founded Endow Us, which goal is to make endowment quality investing mm. available to all of us. I mean, we wanted this ourselves, right? We wanted this solution for ourselves. When we realized this problem with CPF, we knew it wasn't only a CPF problem. It was also a cash savings problem. We knew that great products existed by great fund managers managing hundreds of billions, not trillions of dollars. And it was a matter of accessing them and educating people and packaging them in portfolios that were appropriate for your goals. So very similar to the sovereign wealth funds who had to meet their budgets or the pension funds that had to pay out pensions every year, but then also have to take care of the longer term goals and grow that pod and have it beat inflation and all those things. We all on a personal level struggle with the exact same problems. I need to make a house down payment. You need to pay for your wedding. I need to pay for my kid's education. I need to keep money aside for an emergency. But I can't just leave it at the bank earning nothing, right? And inflation will erode that capital. So why is it that institutions invest completely different from my friends and me who are betting on single stocks and hoping for the moon? You see protesters on the street because they're sold products that are inappropriate for them and for their goals. And it has real life consequences. Not investing has real life consequences. Investing or speculating poorly has real life consequences. Whether you like it or not, you can use money to buy stuff that you need in your life or that enriches your life. So you need to position your money in the right assets, in the right buckets to really succeed. I think honestly, this is fascinating that it actually took this long for people to kind of 
disrupt, quote unquote, I hate using this word, but to, to disrupt the space, because clearly this has been an issue people have had to deal with personal finances. This is not like the first generation where we've had to deal with personal finances or had to, to invest our money or to work with fund managers and buying funds and deciding that. But I think it's very interesting that it actually took this long for us to disrupt the middleman. Because I think that's what you guys are doing. You're disrupting the middleman. You're taking the fees away from the middleman and putting it back into the pockets of the everyday consumer. That's why you're able to offer these low fees to them and give them access to funds that maybe they previously would never be even exposed to if they didn't have a certain amount of money. And I think that's right. why it's very interesting that nowadays, not just in Southeast Asia or in Singapore, but even in the US, personal finance education is such a hot topic. I agree, but there's a lot of untruths out there. There's a lot of nonsense of people saying, oh, I'll teach you how to value invest. I'll teach you how to pick stocks. I'll teach you how to generate passive income forever. I'll teach you how to trade options and make XYZ. I mean, just go on YouTube and you're bound to get somebody who looks happy talking about their secret sauce or telling you to watch their course on investing and how easy it is to get started and all that. I mean, it is total nonsense. There's a lot of misinformation out there. And I am going to blatantly go against the brokers as well, because even the new age brokers, yes, they may be low cost, but they're incentivizing you to trade and they're designing their platforms for you to trade more because that's how they make money. In many cases, they say they have no cost, but actually they're just receiving kickbacks on the back end too. In that it's great and they've created a very good experience, but I guarantee you that the laws of the markets have not changed. And there is a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of gamification to make you do things. And in Dallas is an extremely opinionated platform. We make decisions that try to make you invest long-term, even though there are no lockups or no minimums on the platform. We make design decisions as a financial advisor in your court or a wealth manager in your court would do to make sure that you have a higher probability of success. We don't make extra money if you trade a lot. I, I yeah. want to go into details about that, but before we dive deep into the business, let me take a step back. How did you turn this into a business? How did it go from like an idea that you were kind of mulling over in your head into like an actual business? How did that look? To be honest, it was quite quick. We were very quick to leave our existing companies and start putting in the legwork to start in Dallas. We actually went straight into talking to industry experts on how we could structure a business and technology around the use case of investing your CPF and getting access to institutional share class funds, bringing down costs substantially, not being paid any retrocessions, being a fee-only wealth platform. So that became very crystal clear in our heads in the early days. We didn't know how long it would take because there's a lot of uncertainty around being allowed to operate this business. There's licensing from MAS, and we are licensed by MAS, of course, but we were in uncharted territory. Um, very lucky that we had great people join us in this journey early on. Sam is my business partner. He is our chairman and chief investment officer. He was the former CEO and chief investment officer of Morgan Stanley Investment Management for all of Asia. 
17 years at Morgan Stanton and then leaving to first have a sabbatical and then join in Dallas. I think especially when starting a business, uh, putting together that founding team is, is so crucial. How did you go about finding Sam? And how did you go about even sussing out whether or not the other guy was a good business partner? We were connected but through mutual friends. And I think our mission to help people invest better and in Dallas very clearly became a good fit from an, an expertise standpoint and a missional standpoint. I'm interrupting my very own episode to let you guys know that I have a career coaching program designed to help you go from lost and frustrated with your corporate job to living and crushing your dream career. So if you two want to build a fulfilling, purposeful career, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at ongjennifer underscore or reach out to me via LinkedIn. Details are in the show notes to today's episode. In the meantime, if you're not exactly sure what your dream career looks like, I am sharing my three-step framework to help you find your passion. This framework has helped me and my clients in tech, law, consulting, finance, and more figure out and identify their dream career. Want it? Check out the show notes to today's episode to download the free guide now. All right, back to the episode. And for the rest of the team, though, just more generally, how do you go about putting together that initial team? Because I think a lot of businesses fail because of team dynamics. It's difficult. I'm not going to lie. When you're running a small startup that's completely self-funded and it's like four or five people and you're hoping that you'll get the necessary partners in order to launch a great product, there's a lot of sort of hope and faith required in what you're doing. And everyone's very passionate about what they're doing. So when people are very passionate, it can become very emotional. And it's really not easy. I think the one thing I would say is you need to have a very clear North Star. For us, it's to help people invest better so they can live easier today and better tomorrow. And then also do it as a fee-only wealth platform. If you have that North Star and you keep on aligning to that, then things will fall in place. I would also say that just because you have a North Star, it could be a really silly North Star. You need to make sure the North Star is sound, right? It needs to be rational. I was watching this movie, Big Hero 6, with my kids the other day. There's this one sort of comical character. And he's like, what if I could make a sandwich that was invisible? And I was just eating an invisible sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) and everyone thought i was really weird don't make that your north star (laughs) yeah don't make that your north star sometimes you hear people's like startup ideas they're just kind of like hmm yeah i would maybe go back to the drawing board on that one uh so whatever it is your company needs to have product market fit before you really push the scale button So in those early days when you're like, okay, I'm going to quit my job at Grab, you felt like it was okay to take a bit of financial risks to start your own business at that point? I mean, I built up enough savings at that point in time where I was ready to take that risk having gone from UBS to Grab and seen how things work in the inside and then having the courage to start and break out on my own. I think it happened a bit earlier than I thought it would. My plan in my head was that I would break out to start my own business in my 30s. I was 27 at that time when we started in Dallas. I watched some 
webinar with Jack Ma, and he was talking about how in your 20s, you should learn. And then in your 30s, you can start your own business. And then in your 40s, you should support the community. And then somehow it just stuck with me that in my 30s, I should start my own business. So that was kind of my roadmap. But the problem to solve was so obvious and something I felt passionate about as well that I figured, you know, what am I waiting for? Mm, got it. And got it. I knew that to optimize for success in running a startup or to found a company, I knew I had to commit myself fully. I had to invest in that startup in a serious amount to really align my work and incentives towards the success of the company. Because if you start to think, oh, you know, I can get to that later. Work was really tough this week. I don't want to think about this right now. I will do it tomorrow. If I wasn't thinking about in Dallas all the time, maybe this is a bit unhealthy, then I wouldn't get those moments of creativity that would allow us to succeed rather than just be present. I think this world is very, very competitive that if you are not present, if you're not hustling, I think you're basically dead before you start. Got it. So for you, it was definitely like, hey, I want to commit to this idea. I fully believe in it. And I just want to throw myself like fully 100% into this. So I need to quit my job to be able to do that. And at that point in time, you also had money saved up. So you felt like you could take a couple years off to just focus completely on this idea. Did you ever give yourself a timeline? Like if Endowas didn't take off within X years, you would go back to finding a job or that was never something that you said yes. for yourself? 10 years. I figured after 10 years, I would know if I was cut out, even if I had to pivot three times because I couldn't find product market fit. I think after 10 years, I would have given myself enough of a chance. And were you worried that after 10 years, you would be quote unquote, unhirable? Because I think that's a lot for a lot of people, they're really worried even taking like a year off work or two years off work. They're like, oh my God, what if like no one hires me after this? I, I think if after 10 years of trying my hardest to make something succeed, I had not picked up skill sets that were differentiated from anybody else, I would have probably really been wasting my time. But I knew that if after 10 years I did not succeed, I would actually have extremely differentiated skill set from anyone else. And therefore, people should hire me because I would have that perspective. I'm not saying 10 years of goofing around. I'm saying 10 years of being extremely diligent on executing on something rational, something the world needed to be better. And I think people should not be worried about that. In fact, when we hire now, from the industry. We hire plenty of people who have been industry veterans in, in banking or in technology or wherever it is. I mean, we hired our chief advisory officer recently. She was the global co-head of advisory solutions at Deutsche Bank in their wealth management business. We're talking about people with long and successful careers, and they're joining a sort of a, a startup that's been around for a few years, run by a 32-year-old. We're in a very fast-changing world. And the pitch is this. If you leave your job now, and you might be making a lot of money, and you join us for a year or two, you would have picked up, within your realm of expertise, you would have picked up on the future. And maybe we don't succeed as a company, 
maybe you fail at this job, but you would have gained an insight and a perspective that you could go back to any bank and say, look, this is what I was doing at in Dallas. This is what I learned. This is how it works. And bring that skill set back, which is exactly what the banks are trying to figure out. We know what the future looks like. The banks are trying to adapt for the future. You have now differentiated yourself from all of your peers because you have that perspective. If you succeed, you'll be earning stock in a very fast-growing company. You'll be working with extremely motivated people. You'll be one of the early employees at this company. So you're picking up a skill set. You're adding to your resume. What are you scared of? If you tell me, look, I need to pay for care for my parents. I have children. I need to pay for care for them. I have education bills to pay. I have a mortgage to pay. I just can't take that risk. Then you should not take that risk. But if you're comfortable with your current position and your financial situation, and you're able to take that risk, then you are the only person holding yourself back. That's a good pitch <laughs> to get people on board. And I think that's so true, right? A lot of the times it's really yourself who's holding yourself back because you're like, oh my God, what if this happens? What if that happens? I think you make a very, very strong case for all of this. I think having a very strong mission in North Star, as you said, has been a very powerful way for you to get team members on board as well. Because I think that's something that you probably may not get working at a big corporate bank. Yes, you are getting paid good amount of money and you do well at your job, but you feel like you don't really have that sense of purpose or fulfillment that you could potentially get by joining you guys. So I think that's an interesting way of attracting and getting good talent uh, on board. Shifting gears a little bit, how did you guys test product market fit in those early days? How did it go from an actual idea into an actual company out there servicing customers? When you start any business, it's not like you just put it out there and then the internet will make people come. I think people have a misconception about that. No, you need to get out there and hustle and get everyone you think is a potential client to adopt your service. First, we did some surveying on what people do with their money. And it became very clear that most people would benefit from our advice. People don't like to admit that they're not being efficient with their money, but that they would benefit from a service like this. You could have a great idea. You could have executed on it really well, but if no one knows it exists or no one buys it, then you might as well not have created it. So when the platform was available to the public, it was about getting community interest, doing education, producing content, talking to clients. Yeah. Working in a B2C type of company and having to actually market to individual customers can be a very non-scalable thing. So how did you start about acquiring the first few customers? It's completely non-scalable. Yeah. So were you literally you like just... going out to like your friends being like, hey guys, I've started this thing. If you have any friends who are interested, like send them my way. No, it's not even like that. It's like go to friend A's house, sit down with friend, make them take out their phone, make them do the onboarding, get their feedback, ensure that they actually use the product so that they can experience it and then they understand it so that they can become advocates of it. Got it. Okay. So first step was building the product. How did you find the tech person? I think that's also one of the biggest struggles people have when they're thinking about starting their own business. We have a tech network. So you do have to find it through your network. I think that's the easiest, which is why before starting in Dallas, it was very important to get into the tech community, which is what I was able to do at Grab. 
Got it. Very smart. All the dots are connecting to, to where we are now. You got the product up and running. Uh, you had some funds already onboarded at that point in time? We did, but we had to basically work with fund managers to bring funds, make them available to retail investors in Singapore. There was a lot of business development and a lot of convincing them of our mission and convincing them that we would succeed at this despite many people failing before us. I know that you guys offer the institutional share class of these funds, and usually institutional share class, as the name suggests, only offered to institutions because of the high ticket size that they have. They put in a ton of money, so that's why they can lower the fees for them. So did you have to convince the fund managers that, hey, like eventually the money will come in, so please offer this to us? Yes, there was a bit of that. <laughs> okay. And <laughs> you really need to find partners who understand what it is you're doing and spend time with them. But to be honest, we went to a lot of fund managers and they're like, guys, this will never work. And what do you think <laughs> has differentiated you guys from a lot of the people who came before you? I think we tried to make it work wholeheartedly. Our business model enforces alignment with the client, whereas everyone else was probably in it to make money quickly. And to be honest, being fee only is not an easy thing, right? We could make a lot of money invisible to you. We could make a lot of money as a kickback. So I think, again, going back to that mission and your North Star, I think that's been something that has helped differentiate you guys and keep you guys successful so far. I think I'll move on to just talk a little bit more about how you guys expanded over time. I know that you guys just hit a billion Singapore dollars of assets under management, which is amazing. Congratulations on that. I know this was probably a very long journey and not something you can just tell me in like a few sentences, but what do you think helped drive that growth for you guys? It's like professional sports. If you put the right team together with the right heart and grit, you can make it work. You need to convince people to trust you with their money. To be a digital platform business is something new. This is not how our parents manage their wealth. So I think it's very, very important that in our line of business in particular, you need to build trust. You need to touch people on many different channels and make sure that they understand what it is they're getting into. No, we are not capital guaranteed. Yes, we are taking risk in order to achieve higher expected returns, but we're doing so systematically and we're doing so in your best interest. And we're doing so with the right safeguards in place as well. Got it. And moving on to fundraising, I know you guys just closed not too long ago. What made you guys decide to fundraise? So I think once you reach product market fit, you can turn on the growth engine. Every startup should probably bootstrap until they reach this point. Product market fit, you know, people have different benchmarks. They have maybe number of customers or amount of revenue. I think revenue is a decent one. Maybe a million dollars in revenue is when you can stop bootstrapping and say, okay, we have product market fit. We should spend money now to acquire customers to let more people in on this service, to let them know of this service so that they can do better as well. And it's at that point that we went out to raise money for the first time, have our first external round. We were very fortunate in that um, we were not raising money for a very long time. We very quickly found partners who resonated with our long-term mission and vision. Lightspeed Venture Partners was one of the biggest global venture firms in the world. SoftBank, of course, 
is a very, very big name in venture and growth financing. We received investment from both of them. And then very recently, UBS, the biggest wealth manager in the world, a Samsung, their venture arm, which is obviously a massive conglomerate and one of the biggest electronics brands in the world, and Singtel Innovate, which is a venture arm of Singtel, the biggest telecommunications company in Singapore, but also one of the biggest telcos in the region. I think when you can focus on building a great company or a great product, and you can focus on that entirely and succeed in that, then the great investors will find you. I think that's very interesting because for you guys, it was very much focused on getting product market fit before we go out to find investors, which I think is very different from how a lot of other startups do it, which is very much like, okay, as long as I have an idea, let's just get investors on board. Any advice for people who are looking to fundraise? I think try not to spend too much time on it because it is very time consuming and focus on your product and achieving product market fit. Try not to raise too early. Try not to raise too much in one go because you will be very, very diluted. And I've seen that happen to many founders uh, without them realizing. I think it's important that you kind of puddle jump your way through this. And if you really believe in your company, it's not about just trying to get really quick valuation upticks so that your paper looks good or that you're in the news a lot. I think if you can ultimately serve your clients better than anyone else, then you can be a great company, regardless of the amount of time it takes you. Got it. Building a company is not an easy task. Do you feel like you had any mentors along the way? And if so, how did you go about finding them? I wouldn't say I had like a mentor mentor, but I've had a lot of interaction with people who have inspired me. For example, Anthony at Grab is extremely tenacious. So if you work hard and you fight, you can get through anything. You can get through anything. So that's very important to remember that you need to be tenacious because the world is very, very competitive. Growing up in Hong Kong, we were exposed to a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of people who made it on their own, who diversified their businesses, who really evolved with the times which were changing very quickly over the last seven decades. And that's always been very inspirational. I mean, just the proximity to that is inspirational. And I feel very fortunate to have had close enough proximity. It, it can be hard to imagine that a lot of things are possible unless you had that proximity. So it was like your exposure to different people who were entrepreneurs that made you realize, hey, actually, I can also do this and made you see the sort of freedom you could potentially have being an entrepreneur. To close off today's conversation, a question that I do ask every single one of my guests, you know, in the Western world, you often hear people say, hey, follow your dreams and eventually the money will come. Whereas in Asia, a lot of it is, hey, you should do this job because it is financially secure. What are your thoughts on this statement? I think everyone has different priorities and life circumstances, to be honest. I think you need to know yourself well enough before making that kind of decision. Now, my guess is if you're listening to this podcast, you're thinking about a move in your career. And if you're already predisposed to thinking about a move in your career, then you're probably moving a bit too slowly, right? I think you need to have a strategic view on what you consider to be fulfillment in your life and in your career and ensure that every week you look at yourself 
and you know that you're moving in that direction. I wouldn't say follow your dreams and eventually things will come true. I think that's unrealistic, but I'm a super realistic utilitarian person. So I don't like those types of terms. That's fair. And any last parting advice or parting thoughts before we close off today, especially for people um, who are thinking about starting their own business, for example? For people who are thinking about starting their own business, I would say you better make sure you have a lot of conviction and that what you're doing is solving a real problem rather than a fluffy problem. And if it's solving a real problem, and I think the goal is always, ideally, this won't always be the most profitable thing. I think a lot of companies that are very profitable in the last 10 years are not necessarily making lives better. You should see that your product is actually improving people's lives in some way. Then they will continue to use it and others will use it. And I think that's a perfect way to close today's conversation. Thanks, Greg, for all your time and all your advice and sharing your career story with us. It's been really fun listening to your story, getting to know how you built in Dallas. Thank you, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. And there you have it, my conversation with Greg. Here's a couple key takeaways that I got from this conversation. One, something Greg realized after working at a fast-growing startup like Grab is that entrepreneurs are really not geniuses, nor do they have some special talent that the rest of us don't have. They're normal people that just put in a lot of focus, hard work, and are just very adaptable when problems arise. A lot of them are honestly just learning as they go. Two, to build a successful business, make sure you have a clear purpose, a North Star, if you will, and ensure that what you do is constantly aligned with that. A clear purpose will keep you motivated when the tough times inevitably roll around. Also, make sure that you are starting a business to solve a real problem rather than starting a business to make money. Three, be careful not to fundraise too early or raise too much in one go. It is much more important to focus on building a great product and achieving product market fit. Focus on serving the customers, and when you've built a great company, investors will naturally come to you. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Control Alt Career. Check back in two weeks' time for the next episode, where I'll be interviewing Christina Wong, a trained doctor who started an online course that grows six figures in sales in just six months. And if you like this episode, do hit subscribe and share with two friends who maybe aren't so happy with their corporate job and need a little extra inspiration. As a reminder, I also have a one-on-one -on -one career coaching program. So if you're not feeling too happy with your job and looking for some guidance to find a career you do love, feel free to reach out to me or follow me on Instagram at ongjennifer underscore for more career-related content. Thanks so much for tuning in as always. I'll see you guys back here in two weeks. Bye.